0: Welcome to machine learning. Well, this is a this week is a recap, and uh, did a lot of study on on probability distribution, and um, the probability distribution and cumulative distribution are really important because. They help you understand kind of what the data is doing. Um, And from that standpoint, you can uh, understand how the data is clustered and find correlation. You know, and it makes you um, appreciate how the world has run up to this point with statistical analysis. Um, It's pretty rigorous in terms of using the tools and using uh, different visualization methods to look at the data. So for example, um, when you're looking at uh, age and weight of a population, You might conclude when you look at it, just a scatter plot that, uh, that there's a correlation, um, as you get older to getting heavier. But then if you looked at it from a violin plot, you would see that the ranges were very different. It tells kind of a different story, um, as they relate to weight and age. So you can look at it. There is a uh, kind of a grouping by uh, by age, and you can see that in the density of the violin plot. So the width is your density, and uh, and then it has an upper and lower um, range, and then the spines are the uh, maximum upper and lower range so the middle is your median and when you're looking at that um, you don't really see those groupings necessarily in the um, scatter plot unless you uh, do some certain parameters and then you can kind of see the groupings uh, as you as, a, as it relates to age. And so, uh, statistically, I guess you with just the scatter plot, you could draw certain similar conclusions, but it's a lot easier when you're looking at the scatter plot. Then if you want to think of things in terms of standard deviation, use the box plot. So there's some uh, important tools uh analyzing your data and then you're looking at your probability of being in those particular groups and though um, and then you can also look at the cumulative which will tell you the more of the grouping categories what uh what probabilities the um you will be in, in in that group as it relates to the whole. So the whole population. So what percentage of the or probability would you, would uh, the age 50 be in the group? So as you get older, you're going to have less and less probability of being uh, a portion of percentage of that group. So, if, if the world runs on probability, then um, understanding the ca- the different categories and understanding their probabilities is very important. Their densities, because you wouldn't want to market to maybe the 90-year-olds. You'd want to maybe market, you know, weight weight uh, loss to the to 45 and 50-year-olds who are you know gaining extra weight as their lives are getting more sedimentary sedentary, sorry sedentary and uh, those um, um, those attributes about their their life are reflected in the data. And so again, like I was saying yesterday that the data um, if it is, Good tells the behavior of the group, and so that you can analyze the behavior of the group and draw conclusions about the behaviors. Um, I don't. What would you say? I I'm not sure about the fact that there are such wide variations in weight, but yet the the general mass of the group showed that there was a slight increase as you get got into that uh, 50 and 60 year age group and um, you know how does those, that weight increase on the meeting, median as you're moving across the different categories of age how does that uh, that weight increase um, affect the overall health as you are approaching into those golden age years. So um, it's interesting when I think about the um, electoral college and. How the electoral college can uh, de- deviate or be different from the popular vote. So a candidate can can win the popular vote, but still uh, lose the electoral college vote. And so, based on the assumptions about that. Uh, I think Trump will win the Electoral College. And uh, that will be a fantastic win for the Republican Party. So, just a thought on, on the Electoral College. Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, Idaho's economy looks good, it's uh, strong, strong growth, low unemployment. And it's um, we're learning to deal with with the uh, virus, and you know we're not sacrificing our economy in the process. So that that's uh, positive for for Idaho. We keep uh, keep working, and the the disruptions are not. Uh, preventing business from operating Well the uh I guess my thoughts are um about uh thinking about financial just kind of thinking about uh getting back to normal I I I see some uh Interesting uh, trends. People, um, at Halloween, you know, they were, everything seemed fun. And uh, Halloween isn't my favorite uh, holiday. I know some people love the costume, getting dressed up and things like that. What I know some people will not want to participate this year, and so it'll be very different um i think we're gonna put some candy out on our porch and just let if kids come by just let them take what they want and uh we uh, my wife and i for date night we played uh a game called uh the howling hotel it's kind of interesting it's kind of like the escape room, uh, but they moved it to a board game, and it was really fun. She was very good at uh, figuring out the riddles, and they don't give you much at first. You don't, you, you know, you, you're, but you have to use everything that you're given the box, the cards that are given, and be a very observant. But, um, it was a lot of fun. It took us three hours to get through it. And I think it mainly because it, that first few clues, uh, you have to kind of get your mind into the escape room mentality. And, um, she did really well. I was really impressed. I mean, she kept complimenting me, but I was more impressed with her tenacity and, and, uh. I was kind of tired and distracted, but we just kept figuring things out and uh, it was great. We got through all the mysteries. Of, there was only one, one clue. Uh, there was only one, one uh, guess that was hard to figure out because the clue, and I still cannot figure out how they got the clue to match a clock, but uh, not to be a spoiler, but it was really strange. And I looked at the definition, and the only thing I could figure was that that name somehow, anciently, by the Greeks, the Greeks discovered the water clock. And um, now I'm kind of wondering if that is true, if it was the Greeks that discovered the water clock, or if it was the Romans, or not the Romans, the Chinese. So now I'd like to kind of look up the history of clocks. There was a show that I used to like a lot called Connections. It was a British show, and they would, they would kind of go in reverse back to how an invention was created. So you had the end product was like a clock, but who came up with the idea of a spring? And then how did those springs work together to move gears that moved the hands that accurately measured time? And how valuable was time um, anciently and we know today time is very critical it's the you know it's the track digitally everything is um, based on time and but even my watch is constantly syncing to a data center which is probably recalibrating to another server somewhere for the time so these are interesting ideas. And then, you know, how did ancient man figure out time? You know, the way we look at it is uh, uh, sand through a um, a small um, nozzle. And, and perhaps that's how they calculated and thought about time. The other way is the sundials that was a popular way and uh, and how they accounted for um, changes in the year or the seasons as it affected the sundial and its calibration of time because your 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 day your sunlight is is changing but I don't actually know on the sunlight just doesn't change um uh, in its intensity at noon. Obviously in the winter it's colder so the sun the sun is angle and distance is different from when it's uh, summer. And so you know what causes those changes in season? And uh so, could you measure time from the luminance of the sun? Well, and then there's other ways of measuring time. Uh, there could be atomic time. I know IBM built uh, a, a clock where they were measuring oscillation of an atom, and uh, from one one point to another, and there was a certain frequency, and that would that measure time. Well, I'm looking forward to Monday because uh, I'm going to be talking to a uh, PhD, and he was the original inventor of the self-driving car, successfully navigated from one uh, side of the United States to the other, and uh, his algorithms became famous. And it should be really interesting to have him as a guest speaker or guest on my podcast. So hopefully, if you're following me and and listening, that you'll want to listen to that podcast also. Um, So yeah, right now I've got about 53,000 listens and uh, starting to build some momentum thinking about other topics that might be interesting but that one was I've been talking to um, my guest for quite some time and uh, he finally agreed to come on so it's going to be great so come in and listen and listen learn about self-driving cars you know it's it's so fascinating because I was just thinking about how the modern car is very um, very technical it's like we've moved the cutting edge of technology forward and, and surrounded us with it so it's like the introduction of the cell phone originally once we had the cell phone um, people were starting to communicate and now people communicate almost all the time on their cell phone whether they're browsing the internet or they're talking to someone or they're watching uh, a show that the cell phone is, is uh, streaming lots of data to them constantly and so the cell phone really has Become, move the computer closer to the average person today we're doing lots more interactions with computers than we did ten years ago and it's almost interesting to look back uh, in the early part of 2000 and think about how we did business I mean we had email we had video conferencing had uh, instant messaging but cell phone usage was expensive and the plans were expensive the hardware was expensive I don't even think in the early part of 2000 we had the iPhone I think it was about 2002 or so that the iPhone uh, originated so before that we were using Blackberry and uh, definitely didn't have a strong tablet that was being used. So we weren't using things like iPad and um, Surface. But now you look at the number of devices that are available and the data plans that are available. It has become almost like a utility. So we had the landlines but they've been replaced now with cable and voice over internet and cell phone so we all carry each individual now carries their own cell phone and communicates uh, through a wireless carrier so it's interesting how quickly the technology was adopted its convenience was was, uh, utilized And now with cars, you have uh, driver awareness. So it's watching the driver to see if their tension is good. Um, They also have. They also have uh, uh, lane departure detection and and uh, detection of cars that are to the. Right or left of you using a smart mirror where you have a little light. The Hyundai Santa Fe has a little light in the mirror that warns you that there's a person uh, in your blind spot. You know, and um, I don't think that the machine will um, allow you, will prevent you from running into the person. It'll warn you that the person's there, but it won't auto correct and prevent a collision but in a fully self driving vehicle the car might correct you away from a collision it could calculate probabilities, trajectory paths and and it could realize that you're in an imminent pathway to a collision and take evasive matters to prevent you from colliding with that car. And there might be circumstances that are beyond your control that cause that collision. Especially in the case of your if the driver is intoxicated or uh, the driver is sleepy or the driver um, had some sort of health event like a heart attack or something that caused them to lose control of the vehicle then the fully self-driving vehicle could take over and safely navigate the car to a location where um, help could be provided And, and so as more vehicles are going to be using high-tech, we'll surround ourselves with more machines, more computers. And so this fear of machines is is pretty great. However, the fact is that we have more computers now that we're interacting with on a daily basis than we ever have. And so automation and uh, the usage of AI is going to increase. The thing that uh, is interesting is multi-classification. You know, you have you have multiple networks that are analyzing data on a consist, constant, continuous basis. They're analyzing the flow of information and making identifications uh, to where the path to navigate is. Um, you also have different types of interfaces to interact with the machine. And the question is, is will the human interaction be considered a distraction from the driving task? Um, so the, the human being says... They want, they want to go to uh, the, the grocery store and in the process of going to the grocery store the computer um, has navigated a route to it and is about ready to take the exit and the human being says no I don't want to go there and takes over the steering wheel and swerves um, away from the, that lane and then collides into another car. Was it the fully self-driving car's fault for the accident? Well, if it was in in fully self-driving mode, and then the accident occurred, then the log would indicate that the driver took over control at the last moment causing the accident. And you know it's been the reverse where the the self-driving car um, has misidentified objects like uh, emergency vehicles on the road and thought it was a sign and accelerated versus braking or avoiding uh, the object. So those were some of the early mishaps from uh, the decision making of the AI. However, in the future, what if the AI probabilities and decision making are statistically better? Then it would be the uh, the error would be on the human side. And so you could eventually get to the point where you have the iRobot scenario where no one would dream of taking over control of driving the vehicle. Because, you know, the cars would be operating at much higher speeds, you would have tunnels where they, they were accelerating in, and uh, and you'd have lane departures like arteries or veins that you, you exit off at very high speeds and then it, everything would be automated self-parking. So you wouldn't, you would never see your vehicle. You would never see, uh, you would never drive your car. Instead, uh, it would all be like in these caves of steel, where everything is automated. And it seems like that the iRobot world is is very distant, very far away. But there are cities that are beginning to build the infrastructure for high-speed tunnels. Maybe in the tunnels it's a vacuum. So you're in a car, you can't get outside of your car because there's no air in that environment to reduce the friction. And you're driving uh, a high-speed vehicle. And even worse would be that the computer isn't even driving you on the road, what if everything was now electromagnetic and you're moving along like a high speed bullet train and you're in a uh, network of cars that are moving with you that are moving, uh, levitating and being propelled by magnets along a uh, automated highway to your destination. <clears throat> so that, you know, I could see in some ways that you're, the world of high speed transportation on ground could uh, move from like a long train, like a bullet train, to lots of individual pods that are moving at very high speeds being controlled by the computer. Allowing for rapid movement from one place to another. Maybe more rapid. So, say you could move at 200 miles an hour, Uh, what would have taken maybe an hour to get from one destination to another? Maybe you could have reduced that down uh, fourfold. So, maybe it only takes 15 minutes. Or so But you can imagine the, the cost to build something like that would be enormous and so building the future does have a high cost and, and the usage is going to have to be high enough that there would be a return on the investment that the investment would pay off within a certain amount of time. So not, not only does it have to be a good idea, but it also has to be an idea that has a good margin of profit and that margin of profit can be used to pay off debt. Well, even though... Uh, Idaho has a great economy, I could see the uh, return of... Uh, more layoffs and and more downsizing. It's always a concern in my mind. But I've gone through, you know, changing careers and changing jobs. And I do know one thing that is true today is that you can't be afraid. You really can't. You just have to uh, adjust, look for opportunities, retool. If you need new skills, get new skills, and don't be afraid, because we are really in a great time um, for change. You know, we have a lot of adversity with COVID, but we are really in a great time for change. You know, this is the golden age where we have a reduction in war. It's a, an era of peace, and because we're in a peace. Uh, the costs that are associated with war are diminishing and uh, so we're accumulating great wealth breakthroughs in technology are, are helping us reduce down cost and increased innovation and we don't want to move to models of scarcity a renewable energy is a model of scarcity there's no way that our country can possibly run off renewable energy. It's just a fraction of the overall energy production. fraction. Not even one percent. And, you know, the maintenance on the windmills is huge. So they do meet government requirements for clean air, and clean energy however um, it's interesting because there's some trade-off between the renewables and the environment it's, so the the those the blades can only operate at a certain speed so they don't kill birds and they uh, have to be in remote areas so the noise is discomfort by the inhabitants around the windmills. And then solar. Solar still too expensive. So, you know, the best way to come up with energy is probably from the ocean. You've got lots of wave movement that can be captured in the form of kinetic energy that can be converted to electricity. Uh, you have solar that can electrolyze the seawater using their solar cells and a catalyst and you can produce hydrogen I really think that if you're going to be talking about a new energy source that's clean you have to be looking at hydrogen hydrogen fuel cells are due to arrive the technology to mass produce fuel cells has been solved and Their price tag will be expensive however I think that the usage of different uh, nano materials or different fuel stack materials will reduce down the cost of the the fuel cell vehicle so that it can be purchased um, by the middle class because that's the huge driver class that buys new vehicles will be the middle class, and I was always surprised too to hear that the middle class now is about 130 makes about 130,000 a year. You know, I don't make near that much, but it uh, is still very surprising that that's the new middle class. Where if we, you looked in the uh, incomes back uh, in 19. 19- Ninety-six. If you made uh, if you made over fifty dollars an hour, which would be a hundred thousand, you would be considered rich. So, um, the middle class is now pushed up in terms of the incomes because of inflation. And when you have a period of peace, it reduces the inflationary forces. And now you can get a stronger dollar and as you get a stronger dollar, that's very good for uh, buying power for the consumer. And as technology makes things cheaper, more efficient to produce, then the margins on your profits will introduce uh, competition and the competition will drive down prices that's the beauty of the free market system, is that competition redistributes the wealth voluntarily, and the innovation provides incentives for spending. I always find it interesting that people will spend over $100,000 for a Tesla, and because that's the cost almost of a house. But you see many people driving Tesla cars um, and so they must be able to afford a $100,000 vehicle, which is phenomenal. So the middle class or the rich class must be capable of higher incomes. And the way you get higher incomes is You have products that people are willing to pay for. They're willing to give up their hard-earned money to buy your product or service. And that's uh, that's a powerful incentive to continue to improve and build something that people want. Boy, this moon is just amazing. I, there's a, a full moon. I guess it's going to be Halloween, but it'll be a full moon. Last night it was like a picture from a Halloween scene because the clouds were uh, were up and there was a full moon and it was uh, really bright and uh, it had the, the blue cloud structure behind it. To try to take a picture of it, but uh it didn't uh it's not as good on the camera, but still it was pretty amazing to see that. My daughter saw that and told us about it. And she actually went out and watched it for quite a while. And then we we went over and took a look at it and it was amazing. Full moon. Well, these, uh, these talks have been interesting. They provoked some interesting thought from myself and uh, encouraged me to continue to study machine learning and, and share my ideas with you. And hopefully uh, you can contact me on LinkedIn and let me know what you think. I uh, do have a, a group there for logistic uh Regression, deep learning, reinforcement learning, and I've been posting some of the different uh, pieces of work that I've been doing uh, while I've been learning machine learning. But this distribution of data is very important because it gives you a visual, you can plot this distribution and get a visual of how your different attributes are behaving and then using area under the curve you can then find out which um, uh, variables contribute to your observation observations are, would seem like they're very easy to discover but observations are not, there's an art to figuring out how to build an observation which uh, could be multiple um, outputs, or it could be a single output. And if you get to a a binary classification, uh, that entropy classification, that's better. But in financial data, it might just be time series, And the conclusions might be paid on time, late, or uh, overdue. And so those are some of the uh, things that you have to think about when you're trying to stage your machine learning for financials. And, and it might also, you know, with, uh, more, more data lakes that are available, more data that's out there, bigger systems that have to ingest, uh, you know, millions of transactions that are occurring each day and try to draw conclusions. Um, it would be interesting to know. uh found was useful in, for machine learning other than you know general social statistics but using and analyzing social statistics might be valuable because it then can be you can analyze socially things uh, within your organization so the one, one uh, discipline might have a flow over into another discipline. Just like when you're doing academic studies and case studies, they are really refined for the students so that they can uh, explore the data, but the data's been already kind of pre-arranged um, for them so it's easier to think about the cases and then having that same type of framework and logic apply that to business uh, or you go work for businesses that have found those solutions and you gain a deeper understanding of how businesses are using um, the AI and machine learning and then from there you could consult with other businesses so you go to do case studies and it's interesting because like some of the data that we're using in DataCamp uh, from the government side is very heavy with the number of fields and the size of the data sets and so uh, it, uh, because it uh, has these large data sets and large number of fields, you have to read the documentation to, to begin to understand it. And so there's a lot of time they can get invested into understanding uh, government data sets. But there's a lot of people that are analyzing data right now and using R and using Python, and so uh, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, with the, with that uh, higher number of people that are thinking about data and and, and analyzing it, um, there will be more discussions about what the data is saying. And so you'll have people like myself who, you know, been analyzing general survey data for the week and, and, uh, you know, talking about education, age and weight. And so like the education part was really interesting because the higher your education, the higher your real income. And, uh, you know, those correlations that they generally talk about, You can see in the data. You can see the occurrence and frequency and the distribution of of the of those accumulate. So you could, uh, if you put it in a cumulative distribution curve, mass function, uh, cumulative mass function, you can see that uh, between the high school associate and bachelors, that there is um, a higher, a quicker climb to income for the bachelor the, for the general trend for those with the bachelor's degree than for associate or high school all right talk to you later